As you all know, our pastor and his wife are taking a very well-deserved vacation this month. And we uh, sent them with our blessing last week. And if you notice in the bulletin, it says that uh, Kent Penner will be taking over the pulpit. Um, I just want to make sure that everybody understands that this is not a hostile takeover. This was not a... Uh, this was not an aggressive takeover. Actually, Ron and Katie asked me if I would do this this month. I've had several things on my heart over these last few years, and uh, they've kind of come out as I've had opportunity to uh, share the word up here. And so you can kind of tell what's been on my heart by what I'm preaching on. It's kind of worked its way into what I've been calling church essentials. And being involved in the church uh, for many years, it's, it's just really weighing on my heart in many ways, just to come back to church essentials. Does everybody know the name Jack Nicholas? Jack Nicholas. Who's Jack Nicholas? He's a golfer. And he is still considered by many to be one of the greatest professional golfers of all time. He's uh, won 73 PGA World titles and 18 major championships. And that's more than Tiger Woods. You know, when Jack Nicholas was 10 years old, he had this coach named Jack Grout, and uh, Jack Grout was the one that taught him the fundamentals of the golf swing. After Jack Nicholas became professional, I mean, he became a world-class golfer, and his name was known all over the world. But even at the height of his career, when he was one of the top professional players in the world, every so often, he would go back to his old coach from his very young years, and he would say to Jack Grout, Teach me how to play golf. That's from the top player of the world at that time. That speaks to a lot of things. It certainly speaks to humility. But I think as a broader principle, it really does speak to the importance of going back and reconnecting with fundamentals. Because we all have the tendency to drift. We have the tendency not just as individuals, or corporations, or even churches, even whole denominations. So it's important that we don't allow ourselves to stray too far from basics, from foundations, and from essentials. If you just read through the Old Testament, if you look at kings like Saul, Solomon, Asa, they all started out well. If you read the book of Judges, the book of Judges, the first chapter, starts out well. But you don't really get far beyond the end of the first chapter. And things quickly drifted. If you read through the epistles in the New Testament, like Galatians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Jude, and especially the first three chapters of Revelation, we see how even those very early churches needed correcting. So read church history. Church history is a testament of drifting and correction and drifting and correction. And I can tell you that even in my lifetime, even in my years growing up in the church and having been involved with church leadership, I can testify with certainty that unless we are very vigilant, that drift is just a matter of time. So... So I want to stick with the theme of church essentials here. Now, I want to take the last part of the second chapter of Acts and use that as kind of a springboard. 
If you know about this last part of the second chapter of Acts, you know that if we're going to talk about church essentials, we can't get around this passage. So just to set the context, after Jesus ascended into heaven, about 120 disciples were gathered together for a number of days, believers, and they were waiting in Jerusalem, just like Jesus had told them to do, until the Holy Spirit would come, and that they then would be what Jesus had clothed with power from on high. And then on the day of Pentecost, it happened. The Holy Spirit came, and He came with real, tangible power. He came audibly with the sound of a rushing mighty wind or a violent rushing wind. And He came visibly with fire. And it drew a large crowd. And Peter, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, preached a very powerful message, which really culminated with this line here. It says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then the result was right here. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And that was the beginning of the church growth movement. And it was from the Lord. It was not of man. And it continues. This church that we see starting here, this church still continues to this day. And we are part of it. And this is how it was characterized from verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. The key aspects of the life of the early church. And it says this is what they continually devoted themselves to. And that implies a sincere and spontaneous and eager and enthusiastic commitment. And then verse 43 expands further. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. We talk about heady days. You know that last part? That's still, that still is the one qualification for joining the church. Being saved. Being saved. And it was real. It had a real effect on their lives. It had a real effect on their daily lives. And the same should hold true for us today. There's uh, different aspects of this here. Apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread. 
and prayer. Because today is Communion Sunday, I thought it made the most sense to take breaking of bread today. And then over the next three weeks, I want to uh, look at fellowship and then prayer. And then down here to where it says praising God, which is the general area of worship. As for apostles teaching, the apostles teaching for us is the word of God. It's the scripture that we have canonized as the New Testament and the Old Testament. And we've given a lot of time and emphasis to that over the years. And I hope, I believe that we model that as well in our preaching and our teaching. So this time around, I just want to make sure some of these other essential things get some attention as well. So what exactly is the breaking of bread? At first glance, and then also down in verse 46, you can see, it looks like it could just refer simply to sharing meals together. And we can be pretty sure that it actually does mean that. The term breaking of bread in that culture was kind of a common term for sharing a meal. However, Bible scholars and uh, historians seem to agree that in this context here, this goes beyond merely sharing lunch or dinner together, but that it includes the ordinance of what we now call communion. In fact, there's good evidence that the very early church, this church, likely celebrated communion every time they met together for a meal. So it was just an integral part of their, uh, of their fellowship together. These later developed into what are called love feasts, uh, that's kind of hinted at in 1 Corinthians, and it's talked about directly in Jude. And so we have good reason to believe that they practiced communion very routinely and very often. Communion is also called the Lord's Supper. It's referred to that in 1 Corinthians 11. It's one of two ordinances that we do as a church. The other, of course, is baptism. These ordinances, or sacraments as we call them, were not instituted by the church. They were instituted by Jesus Christ himself, both by command and instruction and by example. Jesus himself was baptized by John the Baptist, and Jesus himself served the first communion. So it's not just out of tradition or out of church practice that we do this. They're symbols that we actually physically and actively engage in, and they're really, they're outward representations of an inward spiritual reality. Baptism is a one-time act that we do individually. And the Lord's Supper is a continual practice that we do together as a church body. So for the early church, of course, there was no such thing as a church building. It says they met in the temple, probably mostly for apostles' teaching. But then it says... They did communion from house to house. We've often heard Ron encouraging us to do just that. He's encouraged us to do communion or do the Lord's Supper in our homes with our families and when we have friends who are believers. The organized church, the institutionalized church, has really formalized it to a point that it's, uh, it's become more ceremonial and ritualistic rather than sincere and genuine. And, you know, there's really nothing in the scripture about saying that a pastor has to administer it or that a priest has to dispense it. It really is a sharing together as a body. And it says that they did it with gladness and sincerity of heart. We don't want to overlook that. So, in the time we have here, I just want to look at two aspects of communion. 
They're really simple breakdowns. One is why we celebrate it, and the other is the seriousness of it. But to, uh, to better understand communion, we really need to go back to the Jewish Passover. Most of us know the story of the Passover. We learned it all in Sunday school, most of us. But when God was about to deliver Israel from slavery in Egypt, he gave very specific instructions to Moses as to what the people were to do in order to be passed over or saved from the judgment that was about to come on the Egyptian people. And it included a lamb, it included its blood, and unleavened bread, and a few other elements. And God gave the instruction actually before the event that it would be in the future a perpetual annual celebration using those same elements so that Israel would never forget that they were God's chosen people, they were people of promise, and that God had kept his promise to deliver them and to give them land, to give them a nation, with a supernatural deliverance. Passover was to commemorate that. Exodus 12 here says, verse 14, Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord, Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. So 1,500 years later, when Jesus himself was celebrating Passover with his disciples, and on the night before he went to the cross, he took that ordinance, the ordinance of Passover, and on the eve of his crucifixion, he transformed it into a representation and a celebration of a new covenant. This was not to commemorate God saving the people of Israel from slavery to a nation. This was now to commemorate God saving mankind from slavery to sin. And this is not just remembering God's judgment passing over those who obeyed his commandments by applying lamb's blood to a doorpost or a crossbar. But this was now to recognize that God's eternal judgment would pass over all who obey the gospel and who by faith apply the blood of Jesus Christ to their hearts. The blood of, we've heard it in Revelation over and over and over again, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. And so he declared, Jesus declared on that night that the unleavened bread now represented his body. You know, the last time I was up here, we looked at John 6 and the interaction with Jesus and the crowd. And this is what Jesus said to them, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. So rather than lamb's blood, he declared that it was his blood that would be the ultimate sacrifice that delivers us from God's ultimate judgment on sin. He himself is the Lamb of God. And, you know, there's so many parallels between Passover and the events surrounding Jesus' crucifixion. We don't have time to pull all of those out. But on that particular Passover, Jesus' last Passover, he really completed the picture which the Passover had been pointing to for all those centuries. That's why Paul can say in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, for Christ, our Passover, and this is talking to Gentiles, for Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. So why do we celebrate it? 
I want to highlight five basic points here. And uh, the first and the second are really much the same as the reason why Israel celebrated the Passover. And the first reason is obvious, because we are told to. We are told to. In the same way that God commanded the Passover should be instituted as a continual ordinance, Jesus established the communion as an ongoing ordinance to remember him and how his death delivered us from sin. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, and 1 Corinthians 11, this is the definitive passage on the Lord's Supper or on the communion. In fact, most Bible scholars agree that 1 Corinthians was probably written before any of the Gospels were. So this could be the first written instruction of the communion, at least the first surviving document that is really an explanation of communion. So Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, isn't that something? He took bread knowing what it symbolized, and he gave thanks for it. He gave thanks. He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The second reason why we do it is right here. It's right in the text. In remembrance of me. We do it to remember Jesus and his death. This goes far beyond simply recalling to mind or just remembering the historical fact that Jesus died on the cross. This means we give our full thoughts to the reality that Jesus came to earth to live as a man and to give his life up and to suffer and to actually die. Like when he said to the Apostle John in his glorified form in the first chapter of Revelation, when he said that I am the first and the last I am the living one. I was dead. I was dead. He was dead. For you. For you. For us. He died for us. He died in our place. He died as our substitute. He took God's judgment that was due us. God made him who had no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 2.24 also says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So, we do this in remembrance of him. It also means we honor him. We worship him. We have sincere gratitude in our hearts when we understand the truth of what he has done. And we reaffirm our faith in him, our trust in him, our walk with him, our love for him, and 
our obedience to him as Lord. And that brings us to the third reason. Celebrating communion, celebrating the Lord's Supper, holds us to the foundation of our faith. These are things that we do not want to drift from. When we're talking about the importance of going back to essentials or important foundations, it doesn't get any more essential than this. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in the same letter, chapter 15, four chapters later, says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So regularly celebrating communion, or the Lord's table, as we call it, as instructed in his word, is crucial for holding on to the very essentials of our faith, both personally, each one of us, and as a church body. We need to regularly bring these things to mind. We need to hold them close. We need to stay true to them. We need to keep short accounts with him. And then, of course, we need to remember and honor and give thanks and keep our devotion fresh. And I just need to add this. It not only keeps us from straying and drifting from him, but it keeps us from straying and drifting from each other as a body. And that is the fourth reason. It holds us together as a body of believers. When we take communion, we commune not only with the Lord in our hearts, but also with each other. And that's one huge reason why we actually physically meet together as a church body. When Jesus said, this is my body which is for you, when he said that, he was talking to a group of men in the room with him. Looking back at Acts chapter 2, just one more time, it says, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, day by day continuing with one mind. In the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. That is real unity. That's real unity. It's not just incidental or circumstantial. It was purposeful. In fact, the word communion and community is really the same word, right? It's, it's, it's directly connected. And remember, we can't get around Jesus' prayer in John 17. John 17, Jesus' prayer, he said, and this was talking about all those who would believe through the disciples' testimony. This is not just talking about the twelve. This is talking about all who would believe. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. How can we possibly be divided? if we are all in him. We spent quite a bit of time in the past in the fourth chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians 4 is the, it's the defining church body chapter. And it charges us to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then seven ones. There is one body and one Spirit just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, and then get the last line, God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Going back to um, 1 Corinthians 11, the context for Paul's instructions on communion actually was a rebuke. In fact, it was a very scathing rebuke. And this is how he introduced the subject. He says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. Let's stop right there. Disunity ruins a large part of the purpose of communion. And in fact, disunity directly contradicts the very definition of what communion is. In John 11:52, John gives a little bit of commentary on Jesus' upcoming death. And he says that Jesus' death was to gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So communion really needs to be the great unifier in the church and it needs to be the great equalizer as well. We all come to Jesus as Savior and Lord. We are all sinners saved by his grace and sacrifice. Pastors, deacons, longtime believers, new converts, CEOs, part-time workers, doctors, professors, high school students, housewives, different backgrounds, different cultures. The ground, we've heard the saying, I'm sure, but the ground in front of the cross is level. The ground is level at the cross. And this verse is just amazing to me. Even the great apostle Peter, the foremost of Jesus' apostles, when he wrote his second letter, he addressed the recipients like this. He says, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, the same kind of faith as the apostle Peter, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And by the way, the grammar is exactly like that. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's no question who Jesus is. So if I can just summarize these points. We partake of communion, and in so doing, we are communing with Jesus in partaking in his body and his blood. And we are communing with fellow believers, fellow members of his body. Back one chapter in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Unity is of the utmost importance. And there's a lot more we could say about that, but actually I'd like to address that more next week. And then one more, the fifth reason, and this one is very brief. We celebrate communion, it's found in verse 26, 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're not only remembering, but we're also affirming and declaring and proclaiming a vital truth, even for those among us who are not yet believers, even to the world who's watching us. We proclaim, we declare that Jesus Christ died for all, therefore all died, and that he is the only way of salvation and it's provided by him. For how long? How long we do it? Until he comes. So we'll keep doing it until Jesus returns because he told us to. To neglect it is to be unfaithful. We keep doing it regularly to remember him and that we honor him and worship him. And we stay faithful to him and close to him. And if I could just say it this way, for the second one, so that we don't lose or we don't leave our first love. We want to keep our love for him fervent to the end. And so we'll do this, we'll keep doing it to safeguard against drifting and cooling off. And we'll keep doing it until he returns to help us maintain our unity as a body. And we'll keep doing it until he returns to faithfully proclaim a truth that is of first importance. And before we actually move into our time of communion here, we do need to consider the seriousness of this ordinance because the scripture tells us that it's a serious matter. The first thing to note, and going back to the example of the Passover with this, the Passover was commanded as an ordinance that was to be celebrated by all Jews. It was commanded to be celebrated by all Jews. To neglect it, meant actually fairly serious consequences, like being cut off from the people. But at the same time, it was for Jews only. It was for Jews only, or for those who went through the process of becoming Jewish or becoming God's people. In the same way, communion was instituted as an ordinance for all believers. We are to do this as believers, however, it is for believers only. And that's serious enough, we ask, that anyone here who has not believed or come to Jesus Christ in faith and surrender, we ask that you do not partake of this, but just to let the plate pass by until you have turned to Jesus Christ in faith and truly appropriated his body and his blood for yourself. And please understand that participation in the ceremony and even the bread and the juice itself do not grant salvation. There's no power of, of salvation or of cleansing in the elements themselves. Salvation is granted by faith alone, by turning and trusting and believing Jesus Christ with your heart. And the celebration of communion is celebrating just that. For those of us who are believers, we also need to remember that this is not just a routine, something that we do mindlessly or carelessly or something we just go through the motions with. The warnings to the Jewish people about participating in the Passover carelessly were pretty severe. 
even having leaven in the bread has severe penalties. In the same way, Paul has a very sober warning. This is written to Christians. This is written to us that we should not ignore when we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11.27 Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. That's pretty serious. What does it mean to eat or drink in an unworthy manner? Just the section before, a few verses back, when Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church, it was clear that the Corinthian church had fallen into some pretty chaotic communion practices. Basically, they were showing, number one, they were showing disregard for the body and blood of the Lord. And secondly, they were showing a lack, a blatant lack of concern for each other. And that's a serious thing because the bread represents the sinless body of the Son of God, which he surrendered to death for us. And the cup represents his blood, which he shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And when we disregard that or treat that lightly, it shows disrespect and ungratefulness for what he did for us out of his love and mercy. 1 Peter 1. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges us according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth, and then listen to this, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So Paul says, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. That literally means a sufficient number of them had died in that church. It's a serious thing. The Greek word here, and just to be clear, if any of you read the King James Version, it's a little bit unfortunate, but the King James Version translates this as damnation. And actually, the Greek word for judgment here and for what we'll see later on, which is condemnation or to be condemned, are different Greek words. And it's clear from the Greek word and for the context that this this judgment here is a chastening or a disciplinary judgment, and it is not a judgment of final condemnation. There is therefore no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. But in this passage, we see the mercy of God and also the severity of God, the seriousness of it. So we need to take it to heart. So, as we prepare to take communion, let's examine our hearts so that we not only partake in a worthy manner, but like the very early church, and this is something that I really appreciate about the way that Pastor Ron does the communion service, that we can do it with gladness and sincerity of heart. Ron encourages us all the time to partake with joy, partake with joy, understanding what it means for us we can rejoice. It's important though, not only that the theology in our heads is right, 
but that our hearts are right as well. That our hearts are right with the Lord and that our hearts are right with each other. God looks to the heart. And this isn't about extreme introspection. It's not about being perfect, but it's a matter of fellowship with the Lord, walking with Him. It's like we sang just before, search me, O God. It's not about digging deeper and deeper into ourselves, but it's about asking God to search our hearts and to put His finger on what He would have us to address and to deal with. We submit to His searching. And we know from His Word that if there's conflict or bitterness between us or others that needs to be resolved. Romans 12, 18, Paul says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. But if there is resentment or refusing to forgive, it's a direct contradiction of the forgiveness that we have received. The forgiveness that we were given freely through Christ's death. And especially within the church community, it breaks the communion of the body. Our relationships with each other are very important to God. In fact, they're so important. Everybody remember what Jesus said in Matthew? If you're presenting your offering on the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering in front of the altar and go and be reconciled with your brother. Then come back and offer your offering. So in the same way, if we're holding on to sin, if we're holding on to an area of disobedience, that's also in direct conflict with why Jesus came and gave his body and shed his blood for us. He died to take away sin. 1 John 3, 5 says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in Romans 6, Paul says, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then a few verses down he says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. We live with the presence of sin, but we cannot live under the mastery of sin. We cannot give ourselves to the control of sin. Let's take a couple of moments to uh, come before the Lord in prayer. We just sang, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, O Savior, know my thoughts. See if there be some wicked way in me. Cleanse me from every sin and set me free. Let's examine our hearts toward the Lord and toward each other, knowing that if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, thank you for your great love and mercy on us. 
thank you that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, that all of us who believe in him should not perish but have eternal life, and that he who believes in him is not condemned. Lord, thank you that your blood that you shed is still effective, it still cleanses from sin. Your sacrifice was once for all. Pray that you would be present with us as we commune together, as we share this table, as we share these elements of your body and your blood, which you instructed us to do. Help us, Lord, to do it with sincerity and joy. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.